0: Hi, welcome to My Creativity, the podcast about being creative and producing output. I'm your host, Surrey. I reveal how I work, my projects, my process, my creativity. From planning and goal setting, to how I stay accountable for my output, to the way ideas pop into my head, and the frameworks I use, to stimulate my creativity. So every week, I go over last week's goals and tell you how it went, and then the episode, I give you uh, my next week's goals. I also like to encourage people to be accountable with me, send their goals in to me, and I'll read them out. I'll keep you anonymous, of course, but you'll know who you are. So uh, each week, I'm going to review my monthly goals as well, just to make sure I stay uh, in line with those. So I need to. Bu- For August, I need to publish book two of Exit Plan. I need to have run 15 kilometers uh, on a single run. Uh, Released Exit Plan 3, Season 3 that is, and App Ideas. So, last week's goals then. I was going to run 10 kilometers this week, and I did. So that was nice. My legs hurt a little bit today. Not sure why. I think I was a bit dehydrated. This afternoon... I released Exit Plan Season Three Episode One. Finally, I was uh, procrastinating. I was procrastinating so very much on that. Not entirely sure why. I, I. I guess the thing is that once I start, it's a commitment to release an episode every week. And I guess I don't. I don't take commitments lightly. But I'm. I've done it. So this is the last season of Exit Plan. I said I was going to narrate more of my audiobook. I didn't do that. Uh, I got distracted by creating the book 2 cover, which was not one of my goals I was meant to do last week, but the way things turned out, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, reformatting book 1 and improve the cover of that. So I've, I've done that. I reformatted the cover and and it realigned it and I've gone through and I've altered the font size just a little bit. I brought it down a couple of points and I increased the spacing between the lines just a little bit and I did this in response to going into a bookstore and having a look at some of the novels uh, in the, you know, the, the sort of fantasy and urban fantasy section to see how they were done and I noticed I had slightly smaller print but wider spacing between the lines whereas I've got smaller spacing but larger print uh, I'm going to go with what the uh, professional typesetters have done who am I to reinvent that wheel Okay, so one of the things I'm supposed to do August is come up with this, this business idea. I've said that Gravity Undone is going to be a, or it is a, a collaborative entertainment network for creators to inspire people and other creators. And a quite an important point here is it will be uh, supported by patrons, not advertising. And of course, I said the reason for that is if I'm going to create um, entertainment or if I'm going to be a part of creating entertainment and information for people to inspire them, I believe that they must be my customers. They must be the reason for my creation, the reason for my process and progress. If I'm selling advertising, at some point... The question has to be asked, am I creating content? Am I doing this work to inspire people and to entertain them and delight? Or am I doing it in order to attract advertising dollars? Now, I'm not saying this to knock any other podcaster or any other book writer or any other media outlet for for using advertising. Advertising is a well-established business model. And it makes a lot of sense, Um, but I do believe that we've reached peak advertising. And if you have a look at, uh, for example, Netflix or Amazon Prime, there is no advertising. And yet, they are multi-billion dollar companies. They don't advertise. That means that they, I suppose technically it means that they're not selling me as the product. They're selling their content to me. In order to, for them to gain more money, they need to produce better and more appropriate content, which is good because that's why I'm paying them. And that's what I want to do. I want to have a, an arrangement. I don't want to be Netflix. What I want is a situation where creatives and artists and writers and so forth can create in order to delight and inspire and entertain. And the people who are receiving that value... Pay how they do that and how that's organized. That's what I need to come up with. Which uh, I mean, it's an interesting task and it's one that can be addressed by what's called uh, what do we call it? Disruptive products or innovative innovations. And I want to move away from the marketing speak of disruptive because you'll hear a lot of products or startups talking about being a disruptive blah blah blah, but often often they use that in a term that is um, meaningless, it's cliched, it's just like, it's just a, a marketing way of saying that they're trying to do something a little bit new. But I'm, I'm drawing my definition of disruption and innovation from a very influential book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And it's by a fellow called Clayton M. Christensen. I actually won this book as a prize at an innovation workshop day that we had at my place of work for me being innovative, which is nice. I'm not sure I really was, but I was judged to be the most innovative. So a little bit about this guy Clayton. Uh, He is the Kim B. Clark Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. He is the author of eight critically acclaimed books, including the bestsellers, The Innovator Solution, How Will You Measure Your Life and Disrupting Class. Christensen is the co-founder of InnoSight a management consultancy. Rose Park Advisors, an investment firm, and the InnoSite Institute, a non-profit think tank. So he's, he's had a lot to do with business and so forth. Now, this book, I, I really recommend a lot of people read this. I, I mean, if you're, if you're in business or if you're like me, uh, you know, trying to create things... And really, my creation has to be considered something of a business because uh, I, I want to do it full-time. I want that to be my income earner. And in order to do that, it has to be sustainable and it has to be a business. It can't just be uh, me writing on the train for the rest of my life as I go to work for someone else to realize their dreams. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with doing that. It's just what I choose not to do. So you know, Clayton, he had a look, he analysed a whole bunch of interesting situations in markets where very large, established, well-funded, well-managed companies failed or lost market share or retreated from certain markets under pressure from little upstarts with relatively little funding, uh, little market presence and um, in many ways, inferior products. Uh, he has a number of examples in his book there. He talks about the hard drive market. He has a look at the initial hard drives, which were these great big like refrigerator-sized devices. And that was fine because they were used with you know, great big, gargantuan shipping container-sized computers. And uh, when a smaller hard drive came along, smaller in dimension, as well as smaller in capacity, these developers of these big hard drives are sitting there going well that's kind of cute but not terribly useful because hard drives live in these enormous computers in huge data centers and they have to have you know however many at the time megabytes of storage and your cute little ones they they just don't do that who wants to use that Uh, but interestingly enough of course There was a a class of computer which needed a hard drive but didn't need enormous hard drives, only big enough. And so that's where they started. But then the technology matured and the density of information storage got better to a point where these smaller hard drives were now starting to get used by the data centers, by the big computers, because they could fit more of them in, they were more power efficient, uh, they were quieter, they were easier to package and transport. They had a number of advantages, but it took time for those advantages to occur. And in that time, the big hard drives, yeah they got better, larger storage and so forth, but the trade-offs that people wanted in their product didn't wasn't just more storage. They wanted more storage, but they also wanted a more compact size that was more manageable. And this this process repeated a number of times. So you've got, and if you're old enough like me, you'd remember the old five and a quarter inch hard drives. And in fact, before that, there's, as I said, there's these great big eight inch and 12 inch hard drives. But the eight, five and a quarter inch hard drives, and they were on these uh, mini computers, like small server type things. And then along came the uh, three and a half inch hard drives, which were only, you know, they're small, they couldn't compete in that market, but they could go into the desktop market, the laptop market. And so on. And, and now we're the same thing with these um, solar state drives. They've, they've come in from the bottom from a little market that the big drive manufacturers didn't want or didn't know about or couldn't service. And so the bigger manufacturers, they, they kind of got surprised. They got disrupted when this technology sort of came up from the bottom into their market from a market that nobody cared about. Suddenly now it's, able to compete, and it has outpaced their, their years ahead in their technology. The large companies didn't make bad decisions. They will make perfectly good decisions. And this is because, as Clayton talks about, this thing called value networks. If you're a company that produces a great big hard drive, then you've got engineers who know how to design and work with great big hard drives, You've got warehouses that stock, store, and handle big hard drives. You've got factories that produce them. You've got parts suppliers in your chain of uh, logistics to produce and supply all the parts. And all of that comes with a particular cost, which has to be covered by a particular amount of profit or margin. So to produce, and and I'm just going to throw numbers around here. This is not real numbers. But the example would be, if you're sitting there producing a hard drive and in order to turn a profit and get appropriate growth and cover your supply chain and so forth, you need to make a 50% margin on that. Someone turns up with a tiny little hard drive and it only gets a 10% margin. And you look at it going, well, there's no money in that. And But then you go, okay, well, no worries. Well, maybe though our customers want that. Maybe that's a good thing because we're going to find out what our customers want. So you take this little hard drive off to you know a great big supercomputing data center and say, hey, here's this little three and a half inch hard drive. It'll store 10 megabytes of data. Do you want that? And the, the data center customer goes, I'm dealing with hundreds of megabytes and that costs like 10 times as much per megabyte storage. I do not want that hard drive. It is useless to me. So you're the big manufacturer and you go, well, Okay, none of our customers want this device. It's it's not it's not a part of our game. It's it's not my you know, it's not in our realm. Our shareholders will not accept us pouring money into the creation and development of these little hard drives that nobody wants. But another company will find a market for that little hard drive, laptop computers, for example. Totally different requirements to great big data centers. A laptop needs something that's small, Portable, uses only a small amount of power. Uh, It doesn't need to be really big in storage. It only needs to be big enough. Because remember, back in the day, they had floppy drives. And then certainly along came like CD-ROM. So even then, you you didn't need a huge hard drive. You needed something that was small and quiet and battery efficient. uh, And it could be expensive because everything in the laptop was expensive back then. So you know these laptop manufacturers went, yeah, yeah, we'll buy that little hard drive. But then, you know what? It got better. They developed that technology, and every incremental step was, was much bigger than the incremental step of the big hard drive makers until these little hard drives now can work in server computers and are cost-effective. So what does this mean for me? What it means is, if I try to go into market against, for example, Netflix... So so I say, my product is going to be uh, streaming entertainment content and people will pay me $10 a month subscription to get this streaming entertainment content, whether video or audio books. Who knows? It doesn't really matter what it is. It, it could be pictures of cute kittens. Actually, they probably would pay $10 a month for that, for a stream of constant cute ki- But anyway, you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, I would be presenting this product into a market where everyone is already saying, but I've got Netflix, but I've got Amazon Prime. And I think we're finding Disney is and Marvel is kind of facing this situation where they're going, wow, we're going to produce something like Netflix or Amazon Prime. And customers are scratching their head thinking, what do I want with, you know, I'm already paying for Amazon and, and Netflix, How many more of these things do I really want? And the cost of entry means that you have to be as big as Disney or or Marvel in order to be able to even consider that product. So I can't do that. So you can see, I have to look at the way these big guys have been undermined by little guys. How the little guys have managed to grow a business that appears to be in the market category of the large players. And that's where this book comes in, because he talks about this, how, how this happens. Basically, how it would happen, and I'm sort of breaking it down a bit here. If you want more detail, get yourself, head over to shop.gravityundone.net slash books, and you'll find a link there I've got to The Innovator's Dilemma. Read the book, you'll get a lot of detail. He goes in a great big analysis, and he's, he's very convincing. Far more convincing than me. But here's, here's the basics, basics of the situation. If I want to end up with a viable, proper product, let's say, because what I'm really thinking here is I need a way of getting money. So I need, I need a way of me getting money and a way of the content creators who are collaborating on my entertainment network with me to get money. So we're looking at more like Patreon, coffee and um, Kickstarter, these sorts of things. Now, they're the big players. If I would, and and people have tried this foolishly, I think. They've gone, well, I'm going to make another Patreon. I mean, coffee has sort of done that. They've tried to be a little bit different, but basically what they're saying is, we're Patreon 2.0. And everyone's saying, well, we already have Patreon, why do we want yet another one of these? And if I tried to go in there, the amount of money I'd have to spend in order to even get a foot in the door and then probably have the door shut in my face is ridiculous. So I need to be one of the disruptive products. And that means I have to find a niche, find a set of customers or a market that is currently underserved or unrecognized by the big players. So Patreon uh, allows people, creators, to set up an account, uh, set uh, payment amounts and uh, rewards associated to those payment amounts, and then patrons will pay those amounts and get those rewards. That, in a nutshell, is what we're talking about here. So what I really need to do is I need to identify, well, who, who isn't being served by that? But not only who isn't being served by that, who cannot be searched by that? Who, if I sold my product to and Patreon turned around and they've got they've got tens of millions. I think the last round of funding for them was $60 million or something. So, you yeah, know, they're not huge, but they have millions of dollars, many millions of dollars more than I'm able to swing. <laughs> really. And... And that sounds like I've got any millions. I have no millions of dollars. So they need to look at, you know, if they see me doing my thing, they see my product and they see who I'm selling to and the sort of money I'm dealing with, They, I need to have this situation where they look at that and their good business decision should tell them to stay out. Right? So their board of directors or their financiers, their investors, their CEO will have a look and go, oh, it's this Gravity Undone thing I've heard about. What are they doing? What's their product? Who are they selling to? Uh, let's let's run the numbers on that. And then, you know, the, the accountants and actuaries will go away and come back and the CEO will get the report and say, if I try to pursue this product that Gravity Undone is doing, I will be fired. We will make no money. We will go backwards. It is a waste of time. And the size of that market is too small for me to enter into and so patreon will not it, it's not a competition to patreon and that will be true so my initial market the initial product i produce and the, the, even the initial pricing and and profit margins i should say not necessarily the pricing but the profit margins involved need to be such that patreon and maybe kickstarter whoever else is in this business will take a look and just go it's just not it's not viable or sustainable it's it's pointless because that means I get to swim in what is known as a blue sea or a blue ocean. And I don't know if you've heard of this term before, blue sea, red sea. The idea is that in if you're swimming in the red sea, and I'm not talking about geographic location here, what I'm talking about is an ocean filled with blood. Because the sharks are swarming and there's a feeding frenzy and, it, well, you don't want to be in that, do you? In the blue ocean, there's no blood in the water. The fish are swimming around, there's no predators No one's hurting each other. That's where I want to be. So that whatever product I come up with needs to... And this is is where the innovation is. The innovation is to have a product that will fly under the radar of the big guys because their rational decision-making will say it's not for them. And then through iteration, my product can grow and become more useful, more valuable... ...and move into more lucrative markets... ...which is going to start chewing away at the big boys' markets. But the problem is, by the time I'm going in there... ...each incremental improvement in my product... ...delivers an unfair or, or, a, or an oversized benefit to the market... ...which means the big boys are trying to play catch-up. And this would be where, for example... Facebook has bought out Instagram. So, Instagram came along and was just doing photos. Like, Facebook had all the whole conversations, and you could embed games, and you can, you know, have videos and all sorts of stuff. And Instagram was just, here's a photo, here's a caption, end of that story. So, Facebook was like, yeah, whatevs. But, Instagram, you know, hit this market that was untapped photographers and and, uh, visually oriented people which I guess was sort of the upcoming generation and they grew then and added features like stories and uh, the ability to direct message and these sorts of things which suddenly started pulling people away from Facebook. So Facebook sort of tried to do a little bit of that but you know what's even cheaper and easier for them to do is just to hand over a few billion dollars and buy Instagram. That's when you know that you have a disruptive product. It's when instead of your competitors trying to crush you, instead of the big boys trying to crush you and out-compete you, they simply offer you a buyout. I don't know if I'd take that. I mean, let's face it, if someone offered me like Snapchat, I can't believe it. Snapchat was offered $3.3 billion by, I think it was Facebook. And they turned it down because they reckon they could do better. I don't know, it's yet to be seen, but I, I couldn't imagine what that is. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. Most products do not get buyout offers of that variety. Most products and companies fail before they get to that size. I'm working my hardest not to fail in these in that sort of fashion, but there you go, that's, that's the sort of strategy I have to go in with. I have to have this, I have to find out, who the current market is for Patreon, for example, and I also to find out whether this is actually what I'm pursuing. But find out who the Patreon market is, find out who the Patreon market isn't, and find out who they'd never consider to, you know, service. But what services do they need, and what what will they pay for? How will that how will that transact? Because if I can get gravity undone in there. Then I've got a chance to develop a product, have a market, and then build. That's the innovator's. Well, that's the that's sort of the inverse of innovators' dilemma. The, in, the innovators' dilemma book is kind of aimed at the big businesses, telling them how they can avoid having their lunch eaten by the little guys. And it goes into a bit of detail there, but it's it's a really good book, and it really makes you think, and gives you almost this blueprint of how. How to create a a product or a, let's let's call it a genre of book or storytelling that can creep in, get established, and then explode. And you have a look at reality TV shows; they did that. So, so back in the '90s, it was all scripted sitcoms. It was all you know, um, cop shows. And it was Friends, and it was Seinfeld, and that's if you wanted to make a TV show, you did like Law and Order, or you did like NYPD Blue, or you did like Seinfeld or Friends. That's what you did. But then along came Big Brother, this these guys had pitched this idea of this house that people live in, and and the success of that, like, and that wasn't copied or or taken in or used. For a couple of years, it sat there and, and it just exploded as this ratings hit. People wanted to watch, you know, this stuff. It was new. It was interesting. It served a market that was under underserved, it served the market of these people who didn't want to watch, you know, Seinfeld or they, they wanted to watch something that had enough Seinfelds and friends. They, they didn't need any more of those shows. They wanted something new. And nowadays, you can't move for reality TV shows. Uh, and then we have a look at the the genre of found footage films. Look at the Blair Witch Project. It was made for, I don't know, $30,000 or something. Uh, three film students with some handy cams, basically. And then it, it pulled in millions and millions of dollars and spawned a couple of sequels and so on. Computer games. Again, it was just this, you know, who wants... Prior to that, there's little independent micro-budget films at best got seen at special screenings of indie movies type of things. They never went anywhere. But this combination of that found footage with the low budget and the horror genre, that was the innovation. That was the disruption that got in. So where does that leave me? What is my product? I'm not entirely sure. I've taken some notes uh, and I've, I've got to do my research. I'm kind of thinking... If I if I want something where people pay uh, creators to create, it's got to be something that Patreon's not doing. So I'm thinking it's got to have a it's got to serve the people. And I was thinking about myself. The reason I don't use Patreon is because it's actually a fair bit of investment of my time to maintain a Patreon site. And anyone who has a Patreon knows you, you've got to come up like you've got a whole another website you've got to maintain, and you've got to create special content. And, you know, these tiers and pricing and you've got to push it all the time. It's, it's quite a commitment and you almost require quite a following already before it's even worth your time starting a Patreon. So, so maybe there's an opportunity there for people in my situation where they would like to have some way of engaging and, and providing value to their listeners or readers or viewers or whatever but they don't have the commitment to maintain and create a whole website. Maybe that's something in that. So anyway, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton M. Christensen. It's a fantastic book and it is, it's filled my head with this um, fire and, and inspiration and this, this idea that there is kind of a, a pathway or a roadmap for the small uh, creator the small product builder or, or the small business to be able to move into and, and take the lunch of established players, I never know, maybe I will get an offer of three and a half billion dollars from someone and I'll turn it down because I know better, no I don't know, one can only dream. Still, Innovator's Dilemma, check it out, I won that one from an innovation challenge and it was it's one of the best prizes I've ever won and one of the only prizes I've ever won actually. Check it out at uh, shop.gravityundone.net slash books and the reason i put you there is like that gives you a bit of a description of what's on there and you click through to Amazon from there to buy it because I'm an Amazon affiliate and until I have stronger products uh, I I really would like people to be inspired by the same things that inspire and drive me. So some of these things, these ideas the stuff that's kicked me in motion and made Gravity Undone and made this Exit Plan podcast and my Creativity podcast and Space Brains and made me write these three books that are going out. And and I'm going back to my, my previous novels that I've written and never released and I'm applying a bit of um, storytelling magic to them and they're coming out. Like, that has all come from reading these books. And that's why I'm promoting them. So anyway, next week's goals. I'm going to have a quick sip of Cabernet Merlot. Nice. I'm going to run 10 kilometers again next week. And then the following two weeks, I'm going to be pushing that up to the 15K. So 10 kilometers next week. I've got to release Exit Plan 3, Episode 2. I'm going to finish Book 2 cover. Because remember, by the end of August, I have to publish Book 2. Because I'm already writing Book 3. I'm up to like Chapter 4 or 5 in Book 3. So I've got to get Book 2 off and dusted. And I'm going back to... I've actually recorded the, all the dialogue and, and got everything organized for the first five episodes of Exit Plan 3, so now I can get back to narrating this audiobook. I really want to do that. And Judgment Day, I, I've been so very lucky to be selected for uh, as a voice actor in a, an upcoming audio drama called Danson, and also been uh, blessed with the, the opportunity here to work on some of the music for dancing, which is a cover of the song called Judgment Day by Stealth. It's an acoustic number. I think I played a little bit of it like earlier, like in a previous episode. So I've got and I've got a whole bunch of stuff worked out for that now and, and having just pulled out the guitar and, and created the Exit Plan Season Three intro theme and interlude, you should listen to that. I've moved away from the hard rock and I moved into it's an A minor power ballad sort of thing it's pretty cool. So judgment day. In the meantime, if you do come up with some sort of innovative idea and you're thinking it's going to be eaten up by the big boys, you should check out this innovators dilemma or just think about how you can how you can find your product placed in a market that the big boys don't want and can't make use of. That's how you're going to get your foot in the door. Till then, see ya.